Oh, I was going to say, I did see a tweet that said, editing is a form of lying. So, just keep that in mind when you think about whether or not we want to <laughs> lie to all our listeners. Someone tweeted it. So, and that is the intro. Hello, Syntax listeners. Welcome to the latest podcast. I'm Fernanda. I'm Ethan. <laughs> and I'm Matt. All right, off to a good start so far. Um, what have you guys been up to? Anything, anything new in your life, man? Wow, not very interested in my life. <laughs> what a, what a setup. <laughs> nope, really not. Mm, yeah, me neither. There is, I guess, a small thing uh, that I guess I can bring up um, that this question definitely wasn't planted for. But um, I, uh, I recently um, uh, made a move to uh, Medellin, Colombia. Uh, so I'm down here. Um, yeah, I live here right now. Oh, is that, so is that, near, where, is that near where Ethan's at? Basically, that's in Ohio, right? I think so. It's Columbia, Columbia Cincinnati, County, Ohio. Like that. Haven't been there yet. Ah, perfect. It's on my list of places to visit. <laughs> the thing is, my list of places to visit in Ohio is just bursting, and I really haven't had time to make it to all of them yet. So you'll have to tell us about this place. What are you, what are you doing there? Uh, well, currently I'm uh, I'm enjoying asking people what their favorite color is in Spanish, uh, as well as their name, where they're from, and what they like about Medellin. And that currently is all I can say. But hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to add at least three or four more questions in the next month or something like that, so I can really get some deep, deep conversations, uh, get to the heart of um, what uh, what keeps people going down here. So, um, yeah, I'm taking Spanish classes and uh, I'm working with the foundation down here. Uh, but during this process, um, I'm going to be writing about some of some of my thoughts down here on the. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Syntax before, but uh, there's a platform associated with it, and I'll be um, documenting some of some of my thoughts and, and some of the questions that um, living down here is going to force me to ask myself and ask about the world around me. Like a good Syntactor, I don't know if that's a word. I'm using it, uh, but yeah. So that's that's uh, that's it. All right. Well, that sounds and very spoiler deep. Spoiler alert. That was a planted question. I did know that because Matt has posted his intro article. Um, oh, Matt do you read the site, Fernando? That's good. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you read the uh, site. A friend, a, friend, a friend shared it to me, shared it with me. So uh, it seems like a decent website and with a be- better than decent article about Matt's move and what he expects to be talking about. One thing that is not mentioned in the article is... Matt learned the Spanish word for the cryptocurrency called Bitcoin. How do you say that in Spanish, Matt? Um, <laughs> I did ask someone this, and they looked at me uh, with a perplexed expression and said, Bitcoin. Um, so, uh, you know, it's nice to know that the uh, people can watch uh, the price of Bitcoin plummet in Colombia, just as they can watch the price of Bitcoin plummet in the United States. Truly global. I think that most people really just want to know when it comes to Bitcoin, how to say it in Spanish. But today, for those who are interested in a slightly deeper look, we're going to look at some of the different aspects of Bitcoin, what's the technology behind it, and how it's important, its importance to our economy. So the things we're going to look at, the technology that underlies it is called the blockchain. It's super interesting, at least if you're a nerd. So we'll look at the technology behind that a little bit. We'll look at Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies place in the economy and then also look at it has a certain 
place in the ideological and political discussions because it has certain features of decentralized control that make it appealing to people who think that's important in our government and governmental and economic structures. Um, is, that, is that what we're covering today, right? That's I right. think so. Otherwise, I didn't right. prepare. Yeah. Well, since Ethan appears to have prepared, why don't you tell us a little bit about the blockchain, that cool sounding technology that is not Lego blocks. Yes. So, um, yeah, so uh, Nerd Ethan here did most of his research on the tech side of things. Uh, but I would like to see if I can distill this in a fashion that makes it not totally incomprehensible for people that aren't intimately familiar with um, computers and computer math and cryptography, because the blockchain is based heavily on cryptography, and that's part of the reason it's considered so secure. At a high level, um, the blockchain is basically a way of storing lists of transactions. So the reason it's called the blockchain is that each piece of the list, you can think of it like as pages in a notebook, um, is called a block. So like page one of your notebook is the first block and page two of your notebook is the second block. And the chain altogether is one complete ledger of all of the transactions that have happened in the history of the chain. So basically blockchain is just keeping track of how different things have been moved throughout a network. Uh, but the most common use of this is monetary, right? Like what sorts of things move through a network between many people that stay fairly consistent, um, mostly currencies. So Bitcoin is a specific implementation of the blockchain for uh, currency exchanges. And it can basically prove that two parties are who they say they are. And uh, if they want to conduct a transaction, they can add it to the ledger. Everybody else agrees that this is fair. It should be added to the ledger. And then um, nothing actually moves, right? Like nobody has to give anybody any coins because the ledger is updated and now says that like, like John's wallet has two fewer coins and Bob's wallet has two more because John paid Bob some money. And everybody in looking at how much money people have just refer to the ledger. So I'm going to stop there for now because I don't want to get too, too deep into the technical details before they're relevant. Um, I think the important stuff to get out of the technology at a very high level is that it's secure and it's a complete listing of everything that's ever happened that can't be tampered with. We can talk more later about why it's so secure, but generally speaking, that's how it's relevant economically um, and that the transactions don't require some kind of intermediary. Because if you want to do a similar transaction in the regular world, you have to say to your bank, you know, rather than me going to give coins to this vendor in China because I want to buy something from them, I want you to transfer things from my account. Or you might say this to your credit card company. But all of these transactions involve intermediaries that have to do it for you. And the big difference with Bitcoin and blockchain generally is there's no intermediaries necessary because you have a way of proving that you do want that transaction to be done that everyone believes without someone else uh, basically, basically agreeing that it is you. So anyway, let's let's move a little more into like what this means economically and stuff. So is there anything you want to add there, Matt? Yeah, I think uh, I mean you you hit a good point at the end there, talking about um, what this enable what this kind of technology enables uh, from an application standpoint. So you mentioned you know instructing your bank to transfer funds. Um, you mentioned uh, that that would be something that we would do in everyday life today. So I think. Uh, in the midst of the boom and current bust of cryptocurrencies, 
uh, some people miss out on the real applications and why this is meaningful from a use case standpoint. So um, I think it would be good and maybe this would be the appropriate time to jump into the different things that um, the blockchain is being used for now. So, um, you know, you mentioned monetary assets, keeping track of transfers. Uh, one of the huge benefits of this is being able to um, quickly um, transfer funds between one person to the other without having to go through a, a centralized centralized banking system. Um, it increases the speed at which you could transfer funds um, exponentially. I, you know, I read somewhere that uh, the average commercial transfer of, of funds between banks takes something like 30 days um, and something that would be immediate or relatively immediate depending on which blockchain you're on, maybe 15 minutes now with Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, but those are real, real applications that add real value um, outside of just it being like perceived as a get rich quickly scheme. Um, yeah, the other side of that Bitcoin is that it's decentralized, as you said, which allows for a quick transfer of funds. But there's really nothing. It is controlled. The techno, there's technology that controls the number of Bitcoins in circulation. But there's no, the value of a Bitcoin is not tied to anything. Um, and that leads a little bit to, or I guess a large bit to the fluctuations in price that we've seen recently. So do either of you guys have thoughts of, is that a strength that there's no centralized control who can influence the value? Is that a weakness? Does that hamper its long-term place in the economy? What do you guys think? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a popular talking point. Um, you know, in, in something like this, uh, where you've got some people who are really bullish on it, um, that have made, you know, if you're an early adopter of Bitcoin, you've made a good amount of money. Um, and there's a level of, I think, a lot of people feeling like they've missed out, um, that they've missed something here. And so there, there is kind of a, a feeling that there's almost two teams here. Um, there's one team of people who have benefited financially from this and who, who think, you know, I'm, I'm guns ablaze and all in on, on this kind of technology because it's benefited me so much. And then there's this other team that, uh, you, you kind of get the feeling of rooting for this whole thing to fail so that, um, uh, you know, these people who they felt have gambled on their money and succeeded, um, succeeded aren't, aren't uh, really re rewarded beyond measure here. So, um, and, and with, uh, with that second, uh, second group of people, you hear this a lot. I'm like, oh, it's not really tied to anything. Um, it has no intrinsic value. Um, but that's also something that, uh, you know, you could say about gold when gold was first used as a standard. I know we all uh, have discussed uh, Sapiens before. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Ethan, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, actually. But, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good one. But, you know, it talks about the discovery of gold is nothing new. I mean, or nothing. there's nothing in gold that makes it intrinsically valuable outside of everyone agreeing that it's valuable. And it's not tied to anything. And when we think of currencies, I mean, currencies are backed by government. But the Gold Standard Act was done away with a long time ago. Um, and and Wait, there to, isn't anything tied. To make that clear to anybody who's not familiar with it, that was basically the point where governments agreed that they weren't going to hold gold that, that actually backed up their currency, right? So, like, at some point... We decided that no longer did we have to hold um, enough gold to back up all of the currency in circulation, but we were just going to say, like, the government says the currency's real. There's no gold here in our vaults backing it up. It's just you need to believe that the currency is real. Yeah, well put. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to your point. So, so basically now post gold standard, um, I don't know what do you call, call it getting rid of the gold standard. Um, the currency in almost every country isn't backed by anything. It's just backed by the government, which isn't really anything. Currency is like essentially just a bunch of people agreeing that something is valuable because everybody else thinks it's valuable. And Bitcoin experiences the same thing. It's just used by a smaller number of people and in sort of a volatile market. Like many people are holding Bitcoin because they think that it could eventually develop into something really valuable. And so people are holding it as assets rather than using it as pure currency. And so that's partly leading to the volatility also because less of it is in circulation compared to like dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I think also with dollars, there's, since there's a lot in circulation and it's widely used, there's an accepted value, whether that's to other currencies or to goods or services. There's no like, yeah, a Bitcoin is usually about on par with the euro or the dollar. There's no benchmarks of that nature. Yeah, I, yeah. I will say, um, you know, I think the the term currency uh, is very confusing because I don't know how applicable it is to the vast majority of cryptocurrencies. So we would never refer to gold, for example, as uh, a currency, although it still indicates wealth. Um, and I think that's pretty similar to like Bitcoin, for example. It's not going to be something at this point that you're going to be able to function and move around in day-to-day -day life uh, to pay for a cup of coffee or to um, loan your friend ten dollars uh, so that they could um, go to a movie or something like that. Like it, it's not at that point. Maybe it'll get to that point. I don't know. But it is a very, uh, a very um, potentially stable, potentially stable um, resource for storing wealth, and so it still represents. Um, wealth, just not necessarily from an everyday currency standpoint. And most of the use cases for cryptocurrencies have really nothing to do with paying every single day. Um, if you look at identity management, asset management, um, those are things that solve business use cases that sure transfer wealth in a decentralized manner or um, register things securely on the blockchain that you can't change, but have nothing to do with payments. And so the term cryptocurrency often trips people up uh, and kind of brings out this counter argument of like, well, no one takes Bitcoin, therefore it's not really worth anything. Yeah, but I, to be honest, I don't know if I would present that as like the case for Bitcoin because I don't think that there's really a compelling reason that Bitcoin couldn't be used in everyday transactions, right? Like there's there's intensive logic going on behind the scenes in Bitcoin transactions, but that's also true for credit card transactions. Like we're we're not really at a point where we couldn't build our phones to do the same kind of things with Bitcoin to do like uh, Apple Pay as we do when they use credit cards. It just happens that Bitcoin hasn't reached the level of acceptance that people are willing to accept it where they right now accept credit cards. I mean, people right now trust Visa will pay because Visa trusts most of its its uh, members will pay, et cetera, et cetera. And coffee shops don't think that like Bitcoin is a good investment, partly because it's so volatile. I mean, it's many of these things are vicious cycles. Um, and just over time, it may stabilize or it may not. Well, and the, the other thing to mention about uh, Bitcoin being used as a currency right now is that uh, they have a scalability problem. And so if you're familiar with Bitcoin or have been for some time, there have been several instances of disagreement amongst uh, Bitcoin users, Bitcoin miners um, around the size of the block of each blockchain. So currently, um, currently, I believe it's it's. Uh, 
one megabyte, uh, I believe is the block size of transactions. And so with that, there are so many transactions in Bitcoin right now that the transaction fee that you would pay a miner to validate that transaction has skyrocketed, contributed to a backlog of transactions. So ironically enough, the pitch and the sale that helped um, drive the price of Bitcoin up and help uh, increase adoption uh, is no longer true in its current state. And so that's going to be one of the, you know, one of the problems that cryptocurrency is going to have to work out, work out is how do you scale something so that you don't have these issues of, okay, when everyone's using it, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be costly because that is really the exact opposite point that exact opposite uh, potential benefit uh, um, that cryptocurrency could have. Yeah. So to, to explain a little bit of, of what Matt said there, right? So <clears throat> there, there are real limits on the number of transactions in a finite time period in cryptocurrency because there's actual work being done to verify that those are valid. And that's like computational work that needs to be done by real computers somewhere where uh, Visa and PayPal and these other services believe that all of the people using their cards or their accounts are who they say they are. And there's there's no like master computational effort that needs to be done to verify that these transactions make sense in some way. Where Bitcoin is predicated on this idea of many people checking all the transactions in, in a very particular computationally intense way because that keeps people from cheating. And Bitcoin, or and excuse me, PayPal and Visa don't need that kind of a system. So I just looked up uh, the transaction per second of a number of famous currencies, whether or not we consider Bitcoin real currency. Bitcoin is three to four transactions per second. Ethereum, one of the most famous altcoins, is 20 transactions per second. But then we jump to PayPal, 193, and Visa is over 1,500 per second. So these aren't even in the same like order of magnitude, right? And that is just just like you said, Matt, like that is a serious problem that we're going to have to deal with for quite some time about the scalability of blockchain versus existing methods for payment. It's just not really built for the same thing. And maybe technological advances will change that. But at the moment, we couldn't support every transaction in America on blockchain. Ethan, have uh, yeah. So we're dancing. Oh, go ahead, man. Okay. I, well, I, this may be quick here, but uh, Ethan, um, did you look into it all? Or are you familiar with um, like proof of stake versus proof of work um, from a validation standpoint? Yeah, that's a it's an Ethereum idea, isn't it? And so there's a way to keep track of how much money everybody has without retracing the entire list of transactions. Was my understanding? Yeah, I mean, that's about all I know. I don't know. I know that that is an idea as a potential solution to some of these um, scalability issues, but I I don't know more than that. So, uh, you know, t- take this with a grain of salt because I'm by no means an expert here and I just read it briefly. Ethereum that we mentioned earlier is an altcoin that, that tries to improve on Bitcoin. And um, Matt, you probably know more about this than me, so I'm going to breeze through this so you don't have a chance to correct me. <laughs> but... But uh, one of the things it incorporates is this idea of proof of stake that, as far as I understand, is um, is keeping track of how much money everybody has at a given point in time, rather than making everyone retrace the list of transactions from the beginning. Because if you remember the way we talked about what a blockchain is, it's a list of transactions starting from like day zero, time zero, and how all the coins have moved in certain ways in transactions since that time. Proof of stake means that there is actually... Uh, 
there's actually evidence of what is in everybody's account at a certain time. So it, it removes a lot of the computational intensity of retracing that log file every time, if you think of it as a log file. And I think that solves scalability problems in some ways, but I'm not sure that it, it fixes things like mining problems, so these like transaction verification problems. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding. But there are other scalability issues that need to be fixed, so I'm not sure which it addresses. Yeah, we're dancing around a really important topic here, the topic of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency mining. So let's get into that a little bit. And mining is the process, one, by which people acquire new Bitcoins or I should say that new Bitcoins are created. And it's also an important part in maintaining the integrity of the blockchain, where you have this publicly available ledger that everyone can reference. So do you want, if you want to talk a little bit about what is actually the um, computation behind mining and getting new Bitcoins? Yeah, I, I can take this. And again, this is not a thing I understand fully, but I did some reading about it and it mostly makes sense. Um, there will definitely be some small mistakes in here, so forgive me. But basically the idea is uh, is all predicated on this process called hashing. And I think that this intimidates people who start reading about Bitcoin on the internet and, and they kind of don't want to read further because the word hashing is used like 10 times in 20 words. But what a hash is in computer science terminology is a function that runs one way. So it transforms any given input to a certain consistent output. So you always know that if you put A in, you get something else like H. Um, and you can design all kinds of hashes, but there are certain hashes that are very hard to reverse. And they, they use complicated uh, cryptography, but a lot of them are predicated on the idea that um, remainders, so like, nine divided by five is remainder four. Um, remainders are very hard to reverse in math, extremely computationally intensive compared to some other basic computing operations. And so you can create these functions that like are very easy to execute in one direction and almost impossible to execute in the opposite direction. So we said like A becomes H. If you gave somebody H, uh, the only way they would be able to figure out what had led to H was by checking every single possible input and eventually finding that A leads to H. So if you make your possible inputs really large, um, like a 13-digit number, you know, all of a sudden people can't do that. It's just not feasible. And so everything needs to be uh, just brute forced. And that means many people have to try it. So taking a step back, I know there was a lot going on there. Bitcoin blocks and blockchain blocks generally work on the idea that if you give somebody a hash of a block and you give them some of the things that go into the hash, some of these inputs, and then you tell them they need to find the last input, there's an input that's missing, and nobody knows the answer to what the input is. And everybody in the community tests and brute forces trying to figure out an input that makes the output what everybody knows it needs to be. And the way you get all these inputs and outputs is basically by taking the list of transactions and applying a set of rules to them. And you can reduce pairs of transactions um, into a single number. And then you take pairs and then like take the new pairs you've created and reduce all those up to one number that represents all of the transactions in that block. And then you also use as inputs the timestamp and the hash of the last block. And then you look for um, a random number that completes the hash. And like I don't want to get too far into this. And to be honest, again, I don't understand this fully. But the idea here is that 
there's no way to find the random number that completes this block without trying everything. You just have to brute force it until you find the right answer. And so no one can verify that the block actually makes sense and is a valid set of transactions until someone finds that answer. But what's nice about this idea of hashing is that once somebody finds the answer, they can spread it out to the whole network. And they can say, oh, I figured out that the answer is A. So they send it to everybody on the network and everybody's like, well, this is trivial. Like I can actually check that A leads to H every time. The hard part was finding what A was, but once we know it, checking it is super easy. So then the rest of the network agrees. Yes, this is a valid solution to this block. And because somebody got the answer and it took a lot of computing power to get the answer and you want to reward people for trying to get the answer, new Bitcoins are like quote unquote minted and given to the person who did the quote-unquote mining, which is solving the block and verifying the transactions. So that's how new money is introduced in the system. And simultaneously, it's how blocks are verified and validated and sent out to the whole network. And a, a feature of this is that over time, because these are very computationally intensive and because they all build on one another, like I said, one of the, the features that goes into a block is the hash of the last block, you can't modify entries in the ledger from like a block ago because all of the new blocks are built on that block. And very rapidly, you find that like the chain is created in such a way that it would be almost impossible to modify part of it and update the rest. You need to have um, the same list throughout. And so that guarantees to everybody that the ledger is valid throughout all of its history. Did that make sense? I know yeah. there, there was a bunch going on there. Does that make sense? I think, yeah, I think you hit the main points about the hashing correctly. And for listeners, I had to read through different ways of explaining this multiple times before it started to make sense. The key takeaway is that what um, the last part you can said about the verification is when you create a block, it produces a unique hash that everyone has and is included in the next block, the next page of the diary, for example. Now, if you were to go to the previous page of the diary, scribble something out, and change something, that page would produce a hash, and then when an outsider compared it to the one on the next page that someone wrote down earlier, they would notice that it's different, which would be proof of tampering. A couple things on hashes, um, which may help us understand them. If we go to, if you go to the website passwordsgenerator.net forward slash SHA256 dash hash dash generator. This is you can actually podcasting. You can actually try out a hashing algorithm where you type in anything, your name, um, your I don't know, your dog's name, a random set of numbers, and then it'll produce a hash based on that SHA256 algorithm. And you can see it at the bottom. And you'll notice that you can type, it will be essentially impossible for you to stumble upon the same hash twice. It's, there's just numerically so many possibilities that it could be. And to think about how it uh, applies to the blockchain, maybe you can write down in this generator a couple transactions. You could say, I paid Bob $5, Bob paid Charlie $3, and then look at the hash that it produces. Then go back and maybe change Bob's name to Brenda or change the three to a four, and you'll notice that hash is different. So if someone recorded the original hash, once you go back to that first one, they can see that you tampered it and are trying to pay Brenda instead of Bob or trying to pay 
three instead of four dollars. It's actually a, I think that website's actually useful for gaining an intuitive understanding. Passwordsgenerator.net forward slash SHA256 dash hash dash generator. And no, we're not sponsored. You should sponsor us. A rapid aside on, on uh, hashing passwords, which is actually uh, pretty relevant to everyday life, and I'm not sure people realize this. So there's a, I think there's a general thought in people that use passwords, which is everyone, that when you set a password on a website, the website like takes your password and they like go put it in a long list of passwords and they're like, here's your password. And every time you log in, they go and they say like, was like Fernando's dog 64 the same thing as the original password that he typed in? But in fact, this is not what happens in all but the least secure sites. Um, they will actually hash your password using this algorithm, uh, a variant of uh, what uh, what you put in or what you saw, this SHA algorithm. And then they'll put that hashed answer in the book. And what's great about this is if anybody if anybody hacks into the website and steals all their passwords, all they get back are the hashed passwords. So they can't actually derive what your password was because that would be dangerous since then they could like take Fernando's dog 64 and put it into like Facebook. And because Fernando probably uses the same password on all the sites because most people do all of a sudden somebody has all your information. And last point I want to make is if you ever get an email from a, from a website that you just logged into that says like, Oh, you just created an account. Your name is Fernando and your password is Fernando's dog 64. Like if they send you back your password, like delete your account immediately and never use that website ever again. Cause that is indicating that they're storing your passwords as plain text and that someone is going to eventually hack that site and get all of your personal information. But we digress. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good point. And, um, it's, it's an, I think that maybe deserves its own podcast in terms of like password security and hacking, because that's something that is in the news a lot and may affect tons and tons of people. And we don't all understand it particularly well. But to go back to the blockchain, um, that mining process, which is what we were explaining with that whole John tangent on hashing, is it produces new Bitcoins. Oh, there was another point that I wanted to bring up about your explanation of mining. My understanding is that random number that everyone needs to guess to complete the hash, what it's actually trying to do is produce a hash that's below a certain numerical value. And you don't know, because of how random, seemingly random the algorithm is, You maybe a larger number is needed to produce a lower hash. You don't really know that. So that's why you do have to guess randomly. But once that resulting hash is below the network's difficulty target, which is just a number, that's when the new, that's when that block is solved and added to the blockchain. So... Bitcoin can adjust how quickly blocks get generated by raising or lowering the difficulty target because a lower difficulty target basically just means there are fewer random guesses that will produce a correct hash, a hash that's below the desired value. And the way Bitcoin uses that, to my understanding, is they try to control it so that one new block is created every 10 minutes. Um, can one of you verify on, on if one of you? Yeah. Yeah, so they, okay. they adjust the difficulty factor every week so that based on last week's, um, the last week's mining, the transactions would have occurred at roughly every, or the blocks would have occurred at roughly every 10 minutes with that difficulty factor. 
Right. So as more and more computers are running <clears throat> software to mine Bitcoin, because when you solve it, when you're the one who makes that lucky guess, you get the coin. More and more networks are running that software, but they adjust so that that doesn't mean as more computers run it, each one is less likely to produce a coin and to solve that block. More computers running it does not mean that blocks get created faster. And what that's led to is everyone is trying to make money out of Bitcoin. And so you have, I don't know what the number is, but probably millions of computers around the world devoting some processing power to running these algorithms. And the chances of you actually mining a coin are essentially non-existent because most actual miners are in mining pools where you have thousands of computers trying to get a single coin. And instead of the computer that finds it getting a coin, everyone in that mining pool will get one one thousandth of a coin if one of them finds it. So yeah. if you're looking at getting some really fancy computer to as a viable way to mine new Bitcoins, probably barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, it's mostly server farms in China. Part part of the concern is that um, the your you know your expected value of coins mined is so low that it's actually more expensive to pay for the electricity in most cases. Mm-hmm. So it's it's often being done in uh, places where electricity is actually cheaper. China. Ethan, you mentioned um, when we're talking about transaction rates that Bitcoin is actually substantially less in transactions per second compared to the currency called Ethereum, if I remember correct. And I have heard that Matt Gillum hearts Ethereum. So I was wondering if you could maybe enlighten us a little bit about what that's all about, as well as any other altcoins that you Well, I, I will say my love feels more fickle now uh, than it ever has. Uh, but, um, but I will say that it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about blockchain technology, uh, we use it interchangeably with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is far and away the largest uh, cryptocurrency and it's the largest uh, technological use of blockchain. But Bitcoin only represents about 35% of market value of the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies. So um, when we talk about blockchain technology, um, the majority of cryptocurrencies um, have very, very similar blockchains. Um, as Bitcoin does. So all the mathematical detail that Ethan gave applies to a lot of these altcoins. Um, there are some variations. Um, you know, uh, no, I've, I've made the decision right now that I'm not going to talk about any of the variations. Um, but um, but it, it, it's important to, to know that because I think those things get used interchangeably. Um, and there are a host of non, of other uh, of other currencies that address different problems. And I know we mentioned earlier um, some of the issues that Bitcoin has on scalability. There are tons of coins that brand themselves as the same as Bitcoin, but trying to solve those problems um, that Bitcoin is really facing right now when it comes to scalability. There are um, tons of currencies out there that are uh, trying to build relationships with different businesses to solve solely business problems, whether that's in advertising, whether that's in publishing. Um, there are coins out there um, that you know are built solely to verify transactions of other coins. And, um, and so there, there's so many different things out there. So when people talk about Bitcoin as the sole use of the blockchain, um, it's, it's, it's not true. And I think, Ethan, I think you were the one who said this too. One thing to keep in mind about blockchain technology in general is comparisons to um, 
developments with coding languages that people aren't familiar with the coding language B, uh, but that predates C, uh, which is an improvement on B, and C++ is an improvement on C, and I could be completely butchering this and betraying my level of that's oh, actually wow, completely you. accurate. Yes. Well, I don't know if C++ is an improvement on C. It's it's a <laughs> it's an opinion, but, but but we'll go with it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's well, I was just going to yeah, say that, that uh, so when we talk about Bitcoin now, no one knows what B is 40, 50 years later, and that could be the true of uh, whatever currency um, sees mass adoption and solves a lot of these issues could completely uh, cause the world to forget about Bitcoin, which. Uh, might be blasphemy to a certain group of, of people out there. But it's important to remember that, that there are alternative uh, solutions to all of these problems that are based off of the same revolutionary technology that Bitcoin is on. Yeah, one one pretty interesting altcoin. In fact, the first non-Bitcoin um, blockchain coin is called Namecoin. And it takes advantage of the uh, basically the strengths of the blockchain in totally different ways than Bitcoin does. So like Bitcoin designed to be a currency, uh, you know, at least in some sense. Um, Namecoin is actually a way for people to register domain names. So if you think of like who owns um, ethanswan.com, incidentally, I do. Uh, you have to buy that. And <laughs> shameless plug, everybody visit ethanswan.com. I review coffee shops. It's pretty riveting. Um, so you have to buy that from a domain registrar. And those domain registrars are like companies. Um, so there's a company called hover.com that I bought mine through. Um, and there's, there's numerous others. You see, uh, GoDaddy advertises at the Super Bowl every year and they're a domain registrar. So these are like real companies that are intermediaries between you and owning, uh, a domain. And that like, that kind of represents a way of the internet not being fully open. So the idea of, um, of having some kind of decentralized system was brought up and blockchain provides the ideal system for this. Because it can uh, it can let everybody sign and prove their identity, and so people can say like, "I want this domain registered for me," and now everybody else knows that it was actually me that bought it, and you can all uh, see my webpage at ethanswan.com. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I have known Ethan for quite a while, and I did not know that this webpage existed. Oh but... man, I have not been plugging this enough. Yeah. So anyway, it's th- okay. The point... I will. Pro- I will promote. <laughs> the, the point to be made there is is simply that the blockchain, even from the beginning, was was viewed as having strengths that took it beyond just currency, but but also like authentication systems for many other applications. There was one interesting uh, application I saw about smart contracts, where people can commit something only in the case that a certain condition is met, and a. Simple example would be someone's trying to fundraise for a project. They need $300 to get it off the ground. So people can pledge whatever amount of money, but that pledge, that donation won't go through unless $300 is pledged. And that would be a way to not commit your money to a no a cause that's going nowhere, as well as, um, I forget what the other part I was going to say. but that's just an example of something that will only execute when a condition is met and everyone involved in the transaction can verify that. Yeah, so there, there are a couple of different altcoins built on that. Uh, like Ethereum was probably the first that uh, increased the use of smart contracts. Um, now, there are several altcoins I'd like to recommend um, to see if I can artificially create some value uh, because they are hurting me right now. 
so if you could go out there and uh, you know maybe buy some some Verify, uh, some Monero, XLM, all these great options. Uh, I support them 100%. Um, and uh, after you've done so, if you could let me know. Um, yeah, thank you. So, <laughs> so you could sell. Okay, good. <laughs> So actually, some, when you bring up there, this idea of like owning a portfolio of different um, cryptocurrencies is really interesting because it's something I've looked into. Um, r- really rapid background. So like I'm a young person in a financially stable situation. And so it kind of makes sense for me to take advantage Hit of up, my... ladies. What's that? Oh, <laughs> I said <laughs> kind of, it kind of makes sense for me to take advantage of the fact that I have high risk tolerance because there's a premium placed on um risky investments basically they, they have a slightly higher expected value most people accept and you know the epitome of a risky investment is cryptocurrency so one thing that i've looked into is investing in a portfolio of cryptocurrencies that i don't have to manually manage where i would have to like keep all the wallet keys and like keep track of all this complicated stuff and maybe lose them and then lose all my money you know this is a thing i don't want to deal with so i'd love to just give somebody some money and pay a very small um annual rate basically the way an index fund works or a mutual fund and have them distribute my money into this index fund of blockchain currencies. But this doesn't seem to exist. And I've done like pretty extensive research on it and it feels like a real hole in the market. And I, I was wondering if you guys had any ideas even like why that doesn't exist, if there's some something obvious that I'm missing because it seems like a great investment opportunity. You know, the idea of keeping track of, of uh, cryptocurrency wallets scales really well. Like the trouble it, it takes me to keep track of my own wallet is just as much trouble as it would take me to, ta- to keep track of two wallets or 10 wallets, really. You just need like a very secure computer that has all of these keys stored on it. So I, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on why that hasn't popped up? And, or maybe I'm just really well, bad. So, so I, I do have some thoughts there. Um, and I think, uh, I think they're, very, um, they're very related to a lot of critiques I've heard of mutual funds. So um, if you are, if you invest quite a bit of money in a mutual fund uh, or a hedge fund, the majority of hedge funds, you're expecting at least a constant rate of returns. Um, and so, uh, one of the critiques I, you know, says I can't even remember the podcast I was listening to, but someone who, um, who was a big fan of of the style of investing Warren Buffett does was talking about is the incentive. Um, around a mutual fund is you are just trying to maintain small returns so that people are consistently satisfied so they don't pull their money out. The only thing that would go wrong if you ran a fund is if you had a significant drop that caused everyone to withdraw their money. Um, So the potential loss of having a very volatile currency is far greater uh, than the potential gain because if you're running the mutual fund and it does really well, people keep their money in it. If you're running the mutual fund, um, and it does moderately well, people keep their money in it. But if you're running the fund, and even for a small period of time, say two months, it tanks, and everyone pulls out their money, it's completely invalidated what you've done. So I think that is probably a huge uh, play on it, because a mutual fund has to pitch itself as like, hey, we're going to beat the market because we're doing all these cool things, and uh, um, you know, and, and we have a level of intelligence uh, or a know-how that exceeds what's going on in the market. Um, but a mutual fund around cryptocurrency would be such a slave to the cryptocurrency volatility that I don't think anyone would find added trust um, in that kind of mutual fund like they do in a mutual fund that exists in uh, typical um, stock today. So that makes sense. But, um, you know, a, a lot of what you say about the promises of mutual funds, I think, 
most people most people agree that that isn't really the case with mutual funds like mutual funds don't really beat the market you can look at actual numbers and that seems fairly provably true and thus um the big switch into index funds and etfs in the last uh, i don't know how long decade maybe and so it seems feasible that you could have the same deal uh with cryptocurrencies where you have this index fund that is just mirroring uh cryptocurrency but maybe you know maybe i'm giving the general population too much credit because people would still do the same thing and pull out their money because the volatility of of cryptocurrency is such that it absolutely would drop for two months as we've seen and maybe maybe the fund would collapse yeah because so, an index know, maybe, fund maybe that's right is there any syntax listeners listening in like 2030 to this podcast or maybe 2040 it'd be interesting to see if this has developed along the lines of Ethan's thinking, let us know. Yes, let us know. What You can comment on ethanswan.com. Actually, no, comments are not permitted on ethanswan.com. Only <laughs> Ethan Swan's opinions are represented on ethanswan.com. <clears throat> ah, fair enough. Sorry, that was a not super important tangent about what when you have, you're having an interesting discussion going on that I interested. <laughs> Sorry, we were done. <laughs> What okay. uh, well, what other ideological points do we want to hit here? Because I do think that um, the promise of cryptocurrency is so much more than what it is now. You know, it's it's around these ideas of like privacy in all transactions and the ability to uh, conduct conduct transactions much more quickly and um, without some kind of authentication service. So I don't know. Do you guys have any particular things that you're looking forward to in 2030 when we have these listeners emailing us new things that well, the blockchain has brought us? I'm not sure that this is something I would be looking forward to necessarily, but uh, before I was taking down the anonymous marketplace, the Silk Road uh, used a lot of Bitcoin and I, I don't know if they use other cryptocurrencies as well because people who are engaging in illegal transactions obviously like the idea of untraceable funds um, that can be verified without knowing individuals' identities. And maybe there's a place for that in more legal settings, but one of the more obvious applications to of cryptocurrency is to the black. I, I will so also say that, that uh, you know, I think that that's information that, that people do hark on, harp on a lot, hark on, harp on a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, so in Colombia, there are quite a few like Venezuelan refugees, for example, that come over um, and whose currency is absolutely worthless here. Um, I won't pretend to know uh, everything about the situation in Venezuela or uh, really be any sort of uh, expert in anything like that. But that is um, a huge issue, is that money that people have deemed valuable through a government um, no longer has any value due to the instability of a government. And that's something that, like, you know, most people in modern countries are so far removed from that kind of threat that you don't really process that that actually could be a real issue um, and something that, you know, the long term in 2040 uh, or, you know, in 2140 or whenever, that if you were building a global economy or even an economy based off of a, a national currency based off of cryptocurrency or whatever that might look like, that there is a level of stability that you could actually contribute um, that would exceed what fiat currency does um, and that that really isn't unfathomable or even uh, unfathomable then or even unfathomable now. Uh, so I, I think that's helped frame things for me from like a, hey, you know, we don't think the U.S. government's going down or we don't think, you know, this isn't like a conspiracy theory thing. Uh, but it is something that, um, 
yeah, ideologically speaking, could form a more stable government and uh, form a more stable backbone of, uh, of um, a nation state. So throwing that out there. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very good point because you even look at like, like a country like Greece and, you know, like Greece, I, I, I don't know because I wasn't like um, aware of the world situation 15 years ago. But I don't think that that in the 90s people in Greece could ever have foreseen a currency crash, right? Like th this happens to real countries that um, that are perceived as like developed countries and are even like geographically close to an extremely developed uh, European Union, right? So these kinds of problems that you're insulated from by using Bitcoin are are real threats potentially in in not such a distant time frame, like not a hundred years, but like really in like ten or fifteen years, things happen to countries and economies do collapse, and so it makes sense to be insulated from these currency problems. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think some people um, who we're confused by our really incompetent explanation of the technical side might say things like, how can you build an economy on advanced technology that a lot of the world doesn't have access to? But I think the point that was brought up about credit cards is a really valid point. Like there's nothing here that requires quantum computing or anything that we don't have widely available. It's not blockchain software isn't super widely implemented, but it's not cutting edge in the sense that we don't know if we can sustain it yeah anything else we want to hit on this because i've got a i've got a few tangential uh, bring them on blockchain things that i'll touch on at the end i'm all for tangents uh so one thing i think is pretty interesting is there's like real environmental concerns about uh blockchain which sounds kind of crazy when you hear those two words together like how could it possibly be related to the environment but the, uh, the incentive system is such in Bitcoin mining that you want to verify these transactions to earn the new coins, which are very valuable. And you essentially just waste electricity for no real gain. I mean, it's gain for you, but in the, in the sense of the larger world, there's no gain to be had here. You're not like finding new information. You're not really like producing anything. And all of these people are using all of these computers, using all of this electricity to just do incredibly intense computation. And this is like a meaningful electricity drain. I don't think it's meaningful in like the scope of the world, but like what is. So as, as far as like wastes of power go, it's, it's something that is hard to overlook. And I think will always be a concern if we keep with the current system of this like hash verification. Um, but a related point is, so we're using all these computers to do this brute force check of how these blocks are valid. Um, because you're doing many, many, many uh, checks of a number, but really pretty simple math, you can use what are called GPUs. And if you have a computer in front of you right now, uh, you probably have a GPU in there. If you have an iPhone in front of you, if you have an Android phone in front of you, whatever you have, unless it's like a thermostat, it has a GPU in it. Because GPU stands for graphical processing unit, and it's basically used to power the screen of your computer. Of your computer. At a really high level, the point of GPUs is that like, all of the pixels on your screen require a little bit of math to be done to be decided on a color. Um, and the GPU is super good at like doing a ton of calculations in parallel, like doing all your pixels at the same time. It's really, really fast. 
but it can't do like really complicated operations. Well, that makes it ideal for Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a bunch of really simple operations in the mining to like check all these different hash numbers. And so GPUs are perfect. You know, one GPU can do many thousands of checks per second. And so people are buying GPUs that would usually be used in like expensive gaming computers, you know, computers that have a lot of reliance on powerful graphics processors. Um, People are buying those to mine Bitcoin. And it's actually artificially driving up the market for GPUs, which people building gaming computers are very interested in. And there have even been like some pretty pretty, uh, well-known products that are out of stock because of the run on them for Bitcoin mining. Which is just kind of a an interesting unexpected. Yeah, so you, you brought up two points uh, around around I guess incentives, and I think one of the appealing things about um, really about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies that when it came out is it is a really really well set up system from an economic incentive perspective where you have uh, where you ensure a level of security because the incentives are such that miners will behave a certain way um, and such that. Uh, um, uh, that if you're buying um, with cryptocurrencies or selling with cryptocurrencies, that it is in your best interest to uphold the integrity of the system. And so because of that, um, it's just a really, really clean economic system. But when, especially that first point you bring up, um, you know, uh, different different revolutions in history have um, have uh, <laughs> have have caused. Um, you know, different kind of uh, different kind of costs to um, the environment and to the world, and those aren't things that are easily solved because we haven't really discovered uh, or determined um, an exceptional incentive system to uh, de-incentivize damage done um, to the environment that will uh, consequently hurt humanity, hurt um, the world in the long run. Uh, we don't really see that in the immediate environment, but we see some of the costs, uh, you know, maybe 100, 200 years down the line, maybe sooner than that, maybe 50 years down the line. And so that strikes me as a real problem here and one that humanity has just not done a good job of trying to solve when it comes to any of these, um, you know, uh, technological advances when they have uh, harmful consequences to the environment that don't rear their heads for a number of years. Yeah, so this is and that oh very quickly. I mean, this is what I think anybody yeah. familiar with economics would call an externality, something that's not priced into the market um, because it's an effect that's being felt by people either not in the present or not the person involved in the the action. What were you gonna say, Fernando? Yeah, and I think an important point that Ethan brought up earlier is that this isn't the kind of pollution or energy consumption that you know drives cars or powers factories because. This doesn't produce a tangible asset in the economy. It produces wealth for whoever happens to be the lucky miner or the well-resourced miner, right? And maybe well, it, it enables certain. It, Sorry, it doesn't ahead. actually. It doesn't produce wealth at all per se, right? Because um, the same number of bitcoins are going to be released in that amount of time. So adding more computers to the network actually has no impact on the wealth creation. It, right, you're right. It, from an economic it helps one. There's really no wealth creation right. at all because it's all currency. I mean, it's like saying printing ten more dollars is some kind of wealth creation. So, uh, right. all of that removed. Basically, it's it's a bunch of people playing something akin to a zero sum game. It's more like a there's a positive sum, but the sum remains the same in the game no matter what happens. And so that's just important to that's maybe another even bigger factor when comparing it to all the other sources of pollution and energy consumption. This might be more dangerous in a way because you're not yeah. having anything to show for it. 
Yep. Well, I think unless we have anything else, we should probably wrap up. Um, this has been pretty interesting, but we can talk about this forever, so we have to contain ourselves. You guys got anything yep. else? Um, no, I hope people enjoyed it. Um, and we're not sure yet if we can comment on Syntax, but you should try it out and let us know if you can't. We think we think um, there's some angry bots patrolling that we're going to have to take care of. <laughs> so people long. have had some issues, but we're looking into them, and we do appreciate your feedback. Yeah, the joys of WordPress. Yeah, this was a very fun episode. Thanks to everybody for listening. This was this was a blast to prepare for, and, and a personal interest of mine. I know of of Matt's because he's yep. actually well, thanks, uh, into this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Until next time, guys. All right. Bye, everyone.